Hello and welcome to the very first Backtracker History Show of 2024, making this Season 5. My name's Alice, and I have a completely packed show for you, all about things that occurred on the 1st of January. And I have to be honest, I was pleasantly surprised by the range of things I could feature in this a particularly special episode. So let's get started. This is a New Year's special, and because of that, we'll be looking at what happened on the 1st of January over the years. And what better way to start than 45 BC, when the Julian calendar takes effect as the civil calendar of the Roman Empire, establishing January the 1st as the new date of the new year. And then, only a few years later, in 42 BC, the Roman Senate posthumously deifies Julius Caesar. Now though, we take a massive leap ahead to 1604 and the mask of Indian and China knights, performed by courtiers of James VI at Hampton Court. The mask was not published, and so no text survives. But this particular mask marked the return of the royal household to London after an outbreak of plague. The mask was a form of festive courtly entertainment that flourished in the 16th and early 17th century in Europe, though it was developed earlier in Italy. The mask had its origins in a folk tradition where masked players would unexpectedly call on a nobleman in his hall, dancing and bringing gifts on certain nights of the year or celebrating dynastic occasions. consisted of a band of costumed and masked persons of the same sex who, accompanied by torchbearers, arrived at a social gathering to dance and converse with the guests. The mask could simply be a procession of such people introduced by a presenter, or it could be an elaborately staged show in which a brief lyrical drama heralded the appearance of maskers, who having descended from their pageant to perform figured dances, revelled with the guests until summoned back into their pageant by farewell speeches and song. The theme of the drama presented during a mask was usually mythological, allegorical or symbolic and was designed to be complementary to the noble or royal host of the social gathering. Maskers who did not speak or sing were often courtiers, The English Queen Anne of Denmark frequently danced with her ladies in masks between 1603 and 1611, and Henry VIII and Charles I of England performed in the masks in their courts. A letter written by Arabella Stewart appears to identify the Mask of Knights and another mask as the invention of a group of male courtiers rather than the Queen's personal production writing on the 18th of December 1603 that she was their confidant. Certain noblemen, whom I may not yet name to you because some of them have made of me their counsel, intend another. Certain gentlemen of a good sort another. Word 
Word of the Week. Not so much Word of the Week, but one of the most looked up words of 2023. Riz. A fine example of internet-driven slang, which shot to the top of lookups when it was added to the dictionary in September. As a noun, riz means romantic appeal or charm, as in a bro who has riz. As a verb, typically used with up, as in riz up that cutie, it means to charm or seduce. It's frequently considered a play on charisma, but YouTuber Kai Sinat, widely credited with coining the word, says nah, that's not what it's from. And now we continue with our tales of things that happened on the 1st of January over the years. And 1660 sees the first entry in Samuel Pepys's diary, the English civil servant, member of parliament and navy administrator. It would become one of the most important primary sources of the English restoration period. Pepys' diary chronicles the Great Plague of London, the Second Dutch War, and the Great Fire of London. The very first entry starts... Blessed be God. At the end of the last year, I was in very good health, without any sense of my old pain, but upon taking of cold. I lived in Axe Yard having my wife and servant Jane, and no more in family than in us three. In 1724, Polish-German glassblower Daniel Gabriel Fahrenheit proposes a system for making thermometers and the Fahrenheit temperature scale in a paper called Philosophical Transactions to the Royal Society of London, the oldest scientific society in the United Kingdom and one of the oldest in Europe. He is elected a fellow on its basis. Our next jaunt through the archives to find out what else happened on the 1st of January over the years takes us to 1772, when the first travellers' cheques, which could be used in 90 European cities, were issued by the London Credit Exchange Company. Between the 1850s and the 1990s, travellers' cheques became one of the main ways that people took money on holiday to spend in foreign countries without the risks associated with carrying large amounts of cash. The convenience and wider acceptance of such alternatives as credit and debit cards and the wider availability of cash machines has led to a significant decline in the use of travellers' cheques since the 1990s. In addition, security concerns of retailers have led to many businesses ceasing to accept them, in turn making them less attractive to travellers. Now we jump ahead to 1775, when English potter Josiah Wedgwood writes that he has developed his famous Wedgwood blue colour in a letter to Thomas Bentley. Although he was born into a family of potters, he wasn't actually a potter himself, as he couldn't work a potter's wheel due to a bad case of smallpox, which left one of his legs badly damaged. After that, his brother refused to make him one of the partners in the family business, so Josiah decided to set up his own pottery in Stoke-on-Trent in 1769. As he couldn't do the actual pot making, he decided to concentrate on the design of his products, 
and tried to find new and exciting types of pottery to entice the consumer, including his creamware, black basalts and jasperware, which would come in new colours, including his company's signature blue, known to the world today as Wedgwood Blue. It's also worth noting that Wedgwood supported the abolition of slavery, and in 1787 his firm designed a famous medallion depicting a bound black slave that was mass-produced and donated to the society for effecting the abolition of the slave trade. Wedgwood was also famous for his sales and marketing, using such familiar modern-day techniques as money-back guarantees, illustrated catalogues, buy one, get one free, and celebrity endorsements, selling to Queen Charlotte and Catherine the Great. He was elected to the Royal Society in 1783 and died in 1795. He is also the grandfather of naturalist Charles Darwin. And so now we find ourselves in 1788, when the first edition of the Times of London, previously the Daily Universal Register, is published. The Times used contributions from significant figures in the fields of politics, science, literature and the arts to build its reputation. For much of its early life, the profits of the Times were very large and the competition minimal, so it could pay far better than its rivals for information or writers. Kim Philby, remember that name as he'll come up again later in the show, was a correspondent for the newspaper in Spain during the Spanish Civil War of the late 1930s. Philby was admired for his courage in obtaining high-quality reporting from the front lines of the bloody conflict. The Times has been heavily used by scholars and researchers because of its widespread availability in libraries and its detailed index, a complete historical file of the digitised paper up to 2019 is online from Gale Senage Learning. <laughs> Word on the street. And in the spirit of all things new, we venture forth to New Kingsley Road in Bristol, BS2. This was once called Upper Cheese Lane and was renamed when Kingsley Flats were built. It may have been renamed after the canon and writer Charles Kingsley, who was born in Holm in Devon and went to school at Clifton. He is mostly remembered today as the author of the classic books the Water Babies and Westwood Ho. An alternative possibility, though, is Sir Kingsley Wood, a Minister for Health who was also responsible for housing during the 1930s. And now we continue with our journey through time to find out what happened on the 1st of January over the years. And we have reached 1808, when the United States bans the importation of slaves. This legislation was promoted by President Thomas Jefferson, who called for its enactment in his 1806 State of the Union Address. He and others had promoted the idea since the 1770s. It was a reflection of the general trend towards abolishing the international slave trade, which Virginia, followed by all the other states, had prohibited or restricted since then. South Carolina, however, had reopened its trade. 
Congress first regulated against the trade in the Slave Trade Act of 1794. The 1794 Act ended the legality of American ships participating in the trade. The 1807 law did not change that. It made all importation from abroad, even on foreign ships, a federal crime. On December 2, 1806, in his annual message to Congress, widely reprinted in most newspapers, President Thomas Jefferson denounced the violations of human rights. He said, I congratulate you, fellow citizens, on the approach of the period at which you may interpose your authority constitutionally to withdraw the citizens of the United States from all further participation in those violations of human rights which have been so long continued on the unoffending inhabitants of Africa and which the morality, the reputation, and the best interests of our country have long been eager to proscribe. In 1818, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, or The Modern Prometheus, is published anonymously by the small London publishing house of Lackington, Hughes, Harding, Mayer and Jones. Mary created the story on a rainy afternoon in 1816 in Geneva, when she was 18 years old. She was staying with her husband, the poet Percy Shelley, their friend Lord Byron, and Lord Byron's physician, John Pellidori. During their trip, this group found themselves trapped indoors by the weather and so passed the time by telling and writing ghost stories. The ideas for both Frankenstein and Polidori's The Vampire, which was published in 1819, were both born that day. What do you call a nervous Jedi? Panikin Skywalker. Now we find ourselves in 1860, when the first Polish stamp is issued, replacing the Russian stamps previously in use. Because the 1st of January was a Sunday, the stamp was not actually available until the following day. The design was similar to contemporary Russian stamps with the arms of the Congress Kingdom in the centre, and the engraving was done by the Polish bank engraver Henrik Meyer. On January 1st, 1892, Ellis Island begins processing immigrants into the United States. From 1892 to 1954, nearly 12 million immigrants arriving at the port of New York and New Jersey were processed there under federal law. Today it's part of the Statue of Liberty National Monument and is accessible to the public only by ferry. And 1934 were on the other side of America and another island, Alcatraz in San Francisco Bay, which becomes a United States federal prison. The prison initially had a staff of 155 and during the 29 years it was in use, 
The prison held some of the most notorious criminals in American history, including gangsters such as Al Capone and Robert Franklin Strode, known as the Birdman of Alcatraz. Now we've reached January 1st, 1945, when, during World War II, the German Luftwaffe launches Operation Bodenplate, or Baseplate, an attempt by the Luftwaffe to cripple Allied air forces in the Low Countries of Belgium, the Netherlands and Luxembourg. The goal of Bodenplatt was to gain air superiority during the stagnant stage of the Battle of the Bulge, so that the German army and Waffen-SS forces could resume their advance. According to the RAF Memorial Flight Club website, the aim was to regain dominance of the air by destroying as many Allied aircraft as possible on the ground, along with stores, fuel supplies and the airfield infrastructure to get the planes off the ground. Every Luftwaffe's fighter and fighter-bomber unit along the Western Front was involved. As well as night fighter units which were redeployed for the operation and with Junker GU-88s acting as pathfinders. Secrecy was so tight that not all German ground forces had been informed of the operation and some Luftwaffe formations suffered casualties from their own flak. British intelligence Ultra had tracked the movement and build-up of the Luftwaffe forces, so they knew something was up, but they didn't realise the operation was imminent, and so the element of surprise was achieved. During 1944, German military production actually reached its highest level of the entire war, with nearly 25,000 fighter aircraft produced. This operation was planned for the 16th of December 1944, but was delayed repeatedly due to bad weather until New Year's Day, the first day that happened to be suitable. The operation achieved some surprise and tactical success, but was ultimately a failure. A great many Allied aircraft were destroyed on the ground, but replaced within a week. Allied aircrew casualties were quite small, since the majority of the losses were grounded aircraft. The Germans, however, lost many pilots who could not be readily replaced. When Operation Bodenplatt was initiated, General Lieutenant Adolf Galland was head of the German fighter force. Suitably unhappy, he had this to say following the operation. The Luftwaffe received its death blow at the Ardennes offensive. In unfamiliar conditions and with insufficient training and combat experience, our numerical strength had no effect. It was decimated while in transfer on the ground and in large air battles, especially during Christmas, and was finally destroyed. Operation Bodenplatte was the conclusion of the tragic chapter. In the early morning of January 1st, 1945, every aircraft took off. They bent into a large-scale, well-prepared, low-level attack on Allied airfields in the north of France, Belgium and Holland. With this action, the enemy's air force was to be paralysed in one stroke. In good weather, this large-scale action should have been made correspondingly earlier. 
the briefing order demanded the very greatest effort from all units. According to records, about 400 Allied airplanes were destroyed, but the enemy was able to replace material losses quickly. In this forced action, we sacrificed our last substance. Because of terrific defensive anti-aircraft fire from the at attacked airfields, from flying through the barrages intended for the V-1 bombs, on and from enemy fighters, and because of fuel shortage, we had a loss of nearly 300 fighter pilots, including 59 leaders. Only by radically dissolving some units was it possible to retain the remainder. ahead to 1948, when the British Railway Network is nationalised to form British Railways. The period of nationalisation saw huge changes in the railway. By 1968, steam locomotives had been entirely replaced by diesel and electric traction, except for the Vale of Riedel Railway, a narrow gauge tourist line. Passengers replaced freight as the main source of business, and one-third of the network was closed by the beaching cuts of the 1960s in an effort to reduce rail subsidies. In 1964, the world's longest-running music programme, Top of the Pops, premiered on the BBC. Broadcast from Manchester's Dickinson Road Studios, the first episode featured lip-synced performances by Dusty Springfield, The Rolling Stones, The Dave Clark Five and The Hollies amongst others. Over the decades, the weekly show became a foundational launching pad for many artists, from David Bowie and the Kinks to Nirvana and TLC. While the Total Pop specials continued to air on Christmas and New Year's Eve, the show ended its regular run on July 30th, 2006, with Snow Patrol playing the final live performance on the penultimate episode. And one last little one, in 1985, the first British mobile phone call is made by Michael Harrison to his father, Sir Ernest Harrison, chairman of Vodafone. In the news today, boffins in Bristol have discovered why Cinderella was so terrible at sports. It's because her coach was a pumpkin. Now these bits are just for the podcast. They're famous birthdays and deaths of people on the 1st of January over the years. Obviously, there's been loads, so I've just picked out a few of each. So let's start with birthdays. And we're going to talk about Kim Philby. I mentioned him earlier in the show as a reporter for the Times newspaper. He was born in 1912 and was a British intelligence officer and a spy for the Soviet Union. In 1963, he was revealed to be a member of the Cambridge Five, a spy ring which had divulged British secrets to the Soviets during World War II and in the early stages of the Cold War. Of the five, Philby is believed to have been the most successful in providing secret information to the Soviets. Next, we have Joseph Robert Sadler, who was born in 1958. He's better known as Grandmaster Flash, 
and is a Barbadian rapper, DJ and founder and creator of Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, and the first rap group to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2007. On June the 1st, 2023, he was awarded an honorary doctorate in music from Lehman College in the Bronx, New York. On August the 4th, Grandmaster was issued a proclamation from the city of New York stating that August the 4th is Grandmaster Flash Day. And lastly, for birthdays, we go to 1969 and Vern Troyer, the American actor best known for playing Mini-Me in the Austin Powers film series. Now we move on to famous deaths that occurred on January the 1st. And we go to 1846 and John Torrington, the English sailor and explorer, who was born in 1825 in Manchester. In May 1845, at the age of 19, he joined the Franklin Expedition and was assigned to HMS Terror as leading stoker. He was part of the 1845 Franklin Expedition to chart and explore areas of what is now Nunavut, Canada, find the Northwest Passage and make scientific observations. He was the first fatality of the expedition, of which all personnel ultimately died, mostly in and around King William Island. Tarrington was buried on Beachy Island. His body was exhumed by forensic anthropologist Owen Beattie in 1984 to try and determine the cause of death, and his remains are among the best preserved example of a corpse since the ancient Tulland Man, which was found in the 1850s. Photographs of his mummified remains were published everywhere. People magazine named him one of the world's most interesting personalities of 1984, and the widely reprinted photograph inspired James Taylor to write a song, The Frozen Man, and Iron Maiden to write the song, Stranger in a Strange Land. Author Margaret Atwood wrote a short story, The Age of Lead, and in the 2018 television series, The Terror, Tarrington's sickness, death and burial are mentioned in the very first episode. And now we move on to 1953, when Hank Williams, the American singer-songwriter and guitarist, passed away. As a boy, Williams was the musical protégé of Rufus Payne, an African-American street performer who went by the name of T-Tot and busked on the streets of Georgiana and Greenville in Alabama. Williams began playing the guitar at the age of eight, his first chords probably being taught to him by Payne. He made his radio debut at the age of 13, formed his first band, Hank Williams and his Drifting Cowboys, at the age of 14, and early on began wearing his trademark cowboy hats and western clothing. The last years of his life were suffused in increasing sadness and substance abuse. He died of a heart attack in a drug and alcohol-induced stupor in the backseat of a car, probably in West Virginia, while being driven from Knoxville, Tennessee, to a concert in Canton, Ohio. And lastly, we go to 1972, when Maurice Chevalier, the French actor and singer, passed away. Best known for his signature songs, including Mimi and Thank Heavens for Little Girls, and for his films including The Love Parade, The Big Pond, The Smiling Lieutenant, One Hour With You, and Love Me Tonight. His trademark attire was a boater hat and tuxedo. When he was young, he was determined to be an acrobat, 
and Morris left school aged 10, but was convinced to abandon this after a severe injury. He tried a number of other jobs, a carpenter's apprentice, an electrician, a printer, and even a doll painter. In the end, he was able to hold down a job at a mattress factory and became interested in performing. While daydreaming, his fingers were crushed in a machine and he was forced to stop working there. While covering in 1900s, he offered his services as a performer to the sceptical owner of a nearby cafe. Chevalier performed his first song there, and the audience thought it was hilarious because he sang three octaves too high. Discouraged, Morris returned home where his mother and brother Paul encouraged him to continue practising. He continued singing and paid at the cafe until a member of the theatre saw him and suggested he try for a local musical. Chevalier got the part and began to make a name as a mimic and a singer. When World War I broke out, Chevalier was in the middle of his national service, already in the front line, where he was wounded by shrapnel in the back in the first weeks of combat and was taken as a prisoner of war in Germany for two years, where he learned English. By the time of World War II, Chevalier was a star and continued to tour in the unoccupied areas of France, but performed twice in Paris and once for French prisoners in a German camp, in exchange for the release of several prisoners of war. He was declared a collaborationist, but his name was soon cleared, and he resumed his career in France. He had a very successful career in America, starring in films with the likes of Audrey Hepburn and Frank Sinatra, but decided to retire in 1967, although he was convinced to sing the title song of the Disney film The Aristocats, which ended up being his final contribution to the film industry. Chevalier passed away in Paris's Necker Hospital from cardiac arrest following kidney surgery. He was 83 years old. Three little words. Some people wait years to hear them, but those three little words could be the most important three little words you'll ever hear. Make you feel as light as a feather, sweep you off your feet. Ready? Fancy a coffee? Over half of us have felt lonely at some point. Lift someone out of loneliness by reaching out for a catch-up. It can help you feel less lonely too. Search Every Mind Matters forward slash loneliness to discover lots of little things you can do to help lift someone out of loneliness. Well, I'm afraid that's it for today's show, but I hope you enjoyed it as the first show of 2024. And as always, I have to thank those people who really brought it all to life. And this week we have Sam Roberts and Molly Jeffries from St. Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol, as well as Steve Shepherd from our very own Bradley Stoke Radio, Tony Allen and Mark Vinette accomplished writer and host of the History of North America podcast. Thank you, one and all. And as for 2024, well, I have lots of amazing and interesting tales to share with you. So don't go anywhere. Thank you once again for listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking up at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. I also occasionally post onto TikTok and Instagram. 
So do come along and find me because it's amazing to hear from you and get some feedback or even ideas for future shows. As a small independent podcaster, your help and support is always appreciated. And one way you can do that is to rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving a review also helps as it gives other people an idea of what the show's about. The show is regularly released on Mondays. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other.